Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Women's health, it's a lot more than just thinking about checking in with your gynecologist once a year. There's so much more that we need to be focused on to make sure that we can stay healthy and do well for our entire lifetime. And today we're going to be talking with Dr. Cheryl too. She is an excellent OBGYN who has over a decade and a half of experience. I feel like I've aged you there (laughs) quite a bit. And we're going to be talking today about what are the ways in which a comprehensive wellness focus really fits nicely into an OBGYN-based practice, obstetrics and gynecology, and how it's so much more than just hormone levels that we really need to be concerned about to make sure that women stay well throughout their entire lifetime. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, a lot of times... We hear about checking in, seeing your gynecologist, women go at some point. The guidelines have sort of changed and morphed over the last few years. But one of the most common reasons that folks might see a gynecologist would be related to doing things like pap smears and HPV prevention. And in the last couple of years, some things have changed. And sometimes I have women ask me, well, how come it's only this interval or why can't I do this or and and they think in some cases that it's driven by insurance, but in fact, this is driven by science. A lot of the studies have suggested that maybe there are some different ways that we can address women's health and in particular prevention of cervical cancer than we ever used to when you and I were in school. So tell me a little bit about what those changes have been. Right. So, you know, actually the the current guidelines have actually been out since 2012. And uh, before that, we we're kind of, well, there were some new guidelines that came out in 2006 as well. Um, but the ones that we're following most recently have been out for the last 10 years. And they really have um, done a lot of research on this. You know, they followed, um, actually, most of the research has come out of um, uh, like about 100,000 women out of Kaiser in Northern California. And they followed out you know, progression of pap smears, you know, whether they had HPV vaccination status or not, whether um, they actually followed up with treatment or not, how many procedures they've they've done. And uh, really, when we're looking at uh, primary endpoints for um, cervical cancer prevention, it's not actually to prevent cervical cancer, but even the step before that, which is some atypical looking cells, um, which there's a stage one, two, and three level. So we're actually looking at a primary endpoint of SYN3. So when we say that um, pap smears now are recommended um, starting at age 21, and we do it every three years, okay, um, at age 30, we can do a pap smear with an HPV test. And actually, if both of those are coming back negative, you wouldn't be due for another pap smear for five years. Um, and their endpoints when they looked at that was looking for, like I said, that stage three pre-cervical cancer, so not even cancer yet, and um, looking at the statistics. So if you have a normal pap smear, um, the chances that you would get SYN3 after three years is less than 4%. So we can safely say that you definitely don't need a pap smear the next year, you know, um, and then uh, if you have irregular bleeding or any a lesion on the cervix, then we're definitely going to do one earlier. But if you have a normal, um, uh, you know, no problems with anything, no abnormal bleeding, um, nothing that we can see that's wrong, then um, you would just need a pap smear every three years. 
Now, um, the guidelines have actually changed again. <laughs> Just when <laughs> Which, I was like, okay, let me jot these down. Right. right. Okay, as, change as they again. all do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there are some new guidelines out by the American Cancer Society um, in 2020 that um, are changing the age of pap smears to actually start at age 25 and then recommend a primary HPV screening. Um, so kind of not just doing the cytology part of the pap smear, but just doing an HPV screen. Um, most of the OBGYNs um, follow the American College of OBGYNs um, guidelines, and those haven't changed yet. So we're still doing pap smears at age 21. And it's because we know that, um, you know, already as it is, women in their 20s are under screened as far as their pap smears. So if we kind of change that age to 25, it's going to already decrease the amount of people that we get in to see the office. Yeah. Sure. I mean, when the guideline says start at, start at 25, if you're delayed like I am with many of these different things, <laughs> you're like, okay, that means like 28, you know, so I'll get there when I get there. But I think in general, the idea of streamlining it and really giving people some certainty about what to do is really helpful. Now, you mentioned that we're talking about HPV. So HPV mm -hmm. is the human papillomavirus. This is a virus that we know has been associated with causing cervical cancer. Not all strains of HPV, but there are some targeted that right. we identified are risk factors if you get exposed to those for cervical cancer. And there are efforts worldwide to eliminate cervical cancer. So when we're talking about HPV, there's also vaccination to prevent it. So part of the evolution of the guidelines perhaps are related to the fact that we're seeing that more women who are getting vaccinated have decreased rates of developing cervical cancer. So as we look at when we should start considering vaccination, are there any thoughts you have on whether or not women who are even below the age of 21 should they start their vaccine series? I mean, I've seen some pediatricians who say, we'll start vaccinating even, you know, at age 11, at 12, 13. Right. This is a prevention type vaccine. Always better to to get the vaccination before you get exposed, thus the idea of protection, than waiting until exposure. So by the time that women might see you at age 21 or 25, they should probably already have had vaccination done. Correct. Yeah. So that's the thing. I mean, we get most of our vaccinations all by the age of one, you know. So um, we are measles, mumps, rubella, polio. I mean, you don't really see people with polio anymore because Hopefully they got not. vaccinated. Exactly. <laughs> They've gotten vaccinated, right. Yeah. So, right. I mean, the, the point is to actually get people vaccinated before you get encountered with HPV. And that's why the recommendation was to start at 11 to 13-year-olds, um, girls and boys, because boys can be carriers as well. And then we're trying to decrease the spread overall. So really, um, H, uh, cervical cancer is majority, 99% caused by the persistence of HPV. So it's about whether your body's immune system is able to get rid of that HPV over time. Um, so if you get the HPV vaccine, I mean, you can be pretty much guaranteed that uh, you will not get like the most virulent form of cervical cancer. There are some very other rare types of cervical cancers that you still might be able to be exposed to, but it's going to be um, much less than 2%. So do you think so. there'll ever come a day when we don't even have to screen for it because everyone's been vaccinated? Uh, I would love to see that day, but as it is, you know, um, still people aren't vaccinated for um, even polio, you know. So with the 
the way that HPV spreads, it's a sexually transmitted disease. Um, it's just, it's going to be a risk factor that's always out there. So I would say that we're never going to completely get rid of screening, but maybe we can, you know, do it less frequently. Now, when you see your OBGYN, um, they're going to remind you, you know, you're going to come in for a breast and a pelvic exam every year. Um, and so we're still checking for, you know, if we can feel lumps that are risk factors for breast cancer. Uh, we're still checking the pelvis to look for signs for um, uterine cancer and ovarian cancer. And then it'll be up to your gynecologist to let you know when you need a pap smear done because it won't be every year, but you're going in every year as routine. Well, and that's an important point that just because you're not doing a potentially a pap smear doesn't mean you don't go in for an annual exam. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, I will continue my discussion with Dr. Cheryl, too, and we will discuss why nutrition and why other aspects of lifestyle can have a direct impact on women, hormones, and how they go about living their lives, hopefully, in as healthy a way as possible. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. This is Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show, and I'm here with Dr. Cheryl, too, and we're talking about women's health. And one of the things we just talked about are some of the new changes with pap smear guidelines. Now, you mentioned annual exams, and sometimes what we need to do is sexually transmitted disease screening, gonorrhea, chlamydia screening, because these are things that can affect fertility as women get older, but can also be silent and not cause a lot of symptoms in some women until potentially they have some serious issues. So these are also other tests that are done for young women. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So we do um, screening yearly for um, any woman who starts having intercourse um, up through the age of 25 um, to check for gonorrhea chlamydia because when you're that young, actually you can have the disease and be spreading it because you don't know that you have it um, and not be symptomatic. So symptoms that we're looking for um, or that can present are going to be, um, you know, heavy, copious amounts of discharge, maybe a foul smell, maybe some burning, some irritation. Um, but a lot of these things are very common in women and they don't think much, that much of it. And so good to get it checked out if you have any of those symptoms. But even if not, there's a screening interval for which we want to check on these things so women can protect themselves. Right. It's annually. Yeah. And if you do have any exposures, then it's treatable. Right. But you should also have your partner get treated. Exactly. exactly. So you don't keep sharing it back and forth. Exactly. So um, your uh, gynecologist will usually go ahead and treat your partner. So we can call in that prescription because we know that you know, the partner is not going to always feel comfortable um, going to their doctor and being like, oh, I have to get tested for this. And we know that they're not going to go in and get treatment. So we can call in that prescription for them. And there's a time interval, too. You want to make sure you treat the patient that you're seeing, but you don't want their, their partner to wait three weeks to get treated because then you might have it spread again. Exactly. Okay. So there's a time interval and certainly can be done. That's probably one of the few rare times when when uh, someone will hear that they're they're getting 
treated by a gynecologist if they're a guy for gonorrhea <laughs> or, or chlamydia because they need to because there could be an issue with spread. Now, it's not just about about doing screening, but the other big topic that I think a lot of young women want to talk about would be related to birth control options. And those have actually changed over the years as well. So some of those things I remember, boy, when I was in school, it was either birth control pills or an IUD or that was all you learned about. And now there's different options. There's Mirena, that's an implantable birth control in the arm. There's all different sorts of ways birth control shots have been around for a while. There is a ring of estrogen that you can mm -hmm. use. So it seems like we've really tried very hard to make it much more accessible to women in different formats. Is that another topic that often comes up when you're treating young women? Oh, definitely. I'd say, you know, a good 30% of my patients are coming in for birth control options. And there are so many options now available. So it's, it's really great. We're trying to get the word out there that... Um, you know, if you don't want to be pregnant, this can be preventable. And there's a lot of long-term options now, you know. So like you mentioned, um, birth control pills. Um, I kind of call it like the gateway hormone, you know. It's kind of like um, how you know how well you're going to do tolerating hormones. I mean, there are some side effects to these medications. And so we kind of discuss all of those issues. Um, so we go through pills. Um, there's a patch, which you can change weekly. Um, there's a ring, which you can change monthly. Um, and then there's um, the IUDs, like you talked about, so an intrauterine device. Um, there's ones that last for three years, five years, or 10 years. You can always take it out before those intervals um, if you wanted to reverse it. Um, there's Nexplanon, which is that implant that's found in the arm and that lasts for three years. And um, the Depo-Provera, which is the the um, injection that you can get that lasts for uh, three months and you come in every three months and we give you the injection. So um, yeah, there's there's many options available. We kind of talk about the pros and cons of each because you have to decide what's going to work for you and what's going to fit well with your lifestyle. The main thing is that if you are going to keep using it, then that's what's going to prevent pregnancy. <laughs> you know, if you, if you have a method that you're not going to stick with, that's when we run into issues. Well, and then there's the whole other aspect beyond birth control is fertility issues. So there's women who don't want to get pregnant and they want to prevent it. And the best form of birth control is the one they're going to use consistently. Right. And then there's fertility issues. So women who want to get pregnant, who for whatever reason are having a harder time of that, that could be a totally separate reason. And or it might be something that you kind of have to look at their hormone levels and see where they're at. What are the optimal ages that you could think of for women who want to get pregnant? There's certain biological aspects of this that we can't really change. And so when you see women who say, I'd like to plan pregnancy, what's the healthiest way to do that? What age group do you see is optimally having healthy babies and able to maintain that? Uh, I don't know if there's an optimal age. <laughs> There's an optimal there's, health status, maybe. There's I an optimal health status for sure. I mean, so I mean, yeah, we we are all taking a lot longer now to think about having babies. You know, part of it is because um, you want to, uh, you know, have your house first. You want to be married first. So there's all these, you know, other life things that we have to consider before we, you know, sit down and think about having children. So. People are having children a little bit later, which is leading to more um, causes of infertility. Um, stress, for whatever reason, you know, is just taking a, a big part in our lives um, that we're, I think, because of these economic factors, right? So now 
you feel like you have to have a two-person income, you know, in order to have that house and to have that, you know, kind of the lifestyle that you want to live, you know. So there's a lot of reasons why people are delaying childbirth. Um, I mean, an optimal age probably would be um, in your 20s, you know, if you can. Um, But you would have to be in good health, you know. So if you have um, diabetes, high blood pressure, um, those kind of issues, even in your 20s, that already is going to be a risk factor and you're going to be considered high risk no matter what. Um, I have plenty of, you know, 35-year-olds that we would technically consider advanced maternal age, but they don't have any issues with a diabetes or a high blood pressure. And um, so I'd say that actually they're going to have a healthier pregnancy than the one that's in their 20s that has those comorbidities. So really, look at what your other health status is. You mentioned uh, blood pressure. That's something that anybody can really, there's a lot of places you can check it. You can buy your own cuff these days and you can check your blood pressure. Then we talk about diabetes and we're seeing an increasing rate of people who are having diabetes and issues with sugars, even in adolescence. I mean, anywhere mm-hmm. you look in the news, there's always this high rate of younger younger people who are getting diagnosed. So that's a serious risk for pregnancy. What would having diabetes do for a pregnancy? Why is it such a risk? It's it's actually puts you at increased risk for um, uh, preterm birth, uh, preterm labor, uh, placental abnormalities. Um, There can be birth defects are more common with patients with diabetes. Um, High blood pressure issues and preeclampsia are going to be... more prevalent as well. So it actually puts you at a higher risk category in general. You know, um, pregnancy is not easy. It's hard on your body. And then already having that pre-existing condition um, puts you already in that um, state where it's going to be, the whole pregnancy is going to be more difficult. Now, the more that more in control you are with your sugars, you know, like if you're a type 1 diabetic, but you um, know how to check your sugars well, and you're always on on top of keeping your sugars under control, that that patient is actually doing really well, and they're not going to be put at increased risk. Um, we're always going to be watching out for those things, um, but I would say that their risk is going to be much less. It's the people that have the uncontrolled diabetes that don't control their sugars well, don't really care about their diet. When they have the hormones and the increase of pregnancy, an extra child growing inside of them, um, it takes up a lot of your resources, and your your body has to divert all that blood away. Um, your baby is getting abnormally high sugars, and um, it can put them at risk for all of those things I mentioned before. Wow. So one of the first steps if a woman said, I want to get pregnant, is check their health status, make exactly. sure that their sugar is low, make sure that everything is going well, and they're they're trying to follow some general nutrition and extra healthy habits before they even embark on pregnancy just to keep themselves and their future baby healthy. Exactly. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about that factor that Dr. Two mentioned, stress. What is that about? And how does that affect our nutrition and how does that affect our health? We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have OBGYN extraordinaire Dr. Cheryl Tu here with me. She's been in practice for about 15 years already, and she has a wellness OBGYN focus. You have a new office that you have established, and you've really tried to incorporate some of the 
lifestyle effects, stress reduction, nutrition, healthy habits into a lot of what you do for women's health. What are some of the goals and how is this practice slightly different in its focus than what most people might think about for checking in to see their gynecologist? Um, well, I mean, I don't know. It's just it's a part of who I am, you know. Um, I um, have a background in Eastern medicine. So um, after um, undergraduate years at UCLA, um, I did my master's in science in oriental medicine. So I came from that acupuncture background. And um, I went to acupuncture school because, um, I don't know, I growing up, my mom um, would tell me, you know, oh, take this herb to heal that or do this to, you know, like more natural methods of, of doing things. And we didn't go to see doctors, <laughs> you know. So um, I just kind of grew up about um, just being around it. And then so when I came out of school, I said, hey, that looks interesting. I want to learn about that, you know. Um, my limitation, I guess, with herbs and acupuncture is like I know it works, um, but there was really no kind of scientific basis behind it. So um, my friends at acupuncture school actually told me about um, being a DO. So I have a DO degree, which is a doctor of osteopathy. And um, with that, they we kind of learn how to um, kind of um, use a holistic approach to, um, to helping to heal the body. Um, originally, it was this Dr. A.T. Still, and he would manipulate the bones, kind of similar to a chiropractor. Um, and uh, so now when we go to a DO school, you actually you go through the traditional medical school, same as MDs do. Um, and then we spend extra hours working on each other, um, learning manipulation. So how it is is um, we learn to kind of put the body into alignment. And um, we know that structure and function are interrelated. And we like to heal the body as a whole and not just kind of the sum of its parts. So that just goes along with my philosophy of how I always treat patients. So when I'm talking to them, I want to know, you know, what they're there for. Um, is it just the annual exam? Do they want their pap smear? Do they need counseling on birth control? But I ask them a lot about their their mental um, uh, mental awareness, you know, like how they're feeling, how they're doing, because you know that that's all going to impact their health. You know, ask them about their physical activity, ask them about their diet, because all of that is going to play a role in well as well as, um, you know, not just looking for these diseases, not just doing the screenings, but helping out their overall health. Well, and you just we just talked about diabetes and pregnancy. And, you know, in a lot of cases, diabetes relates to nutrition and people may have poor nutrition because they're under constant physical stress or they're under mental stress or they just don't have the time or the ability to work on perfect nutrition habits. I mean, if I had a choice, mm -hmm. you know, between let's have a healthy salad and let's have a chocolate sundae, I'm going to admit <laughs> the chocolate sundae seems to be a lot more delicious than the healthy salad. I should be eating the salad and many times I do, but sometimes it's followed by the chocolate sundae. So, you know, there's lots of things that I think people can work on. And just as diabetes could affect pregnancy, we also know it affects kidneys and heart and blood vessels and nerves, and it really does affect various areas of the body. You know, I find it interesting that you mentioned that acupuncture and whether or not there's a scientific basis. And I go back to having a discussion with an acupuncturist a while ago, and they said, if I called it nerves, what would you say? I'd say, oh, I understand nerves. Okay, I get mm -hmm. it. And they're like, well, I call it meridians, but we're talking about something very similar. And I went, huh. Okay, so maybe the nomenclature, you know, when you think about how many thousands of years acupuncture has been right. practiced, it really hasn't hurt anybody. 
And people have done well. And in some cases, acupuncture may be what they needed to help them with healing a variety of different ailments. So I find that that whole comprehensive approach to looking at things, not just with the structure, like you mentioned, but also adding the function and adding this whole concept of your nutrition and your stress levels and your exercise all together, I can only imagine that it really does resonate with a lot of the patients that you see that these things are interconnected, that we really are all integrated as a whole. Right, right. I mean, that's how I look at it is like your body should be flowing. It should be freely flowing. So wherever that blockage is, if we can try to work around that so that it gets to flow the proper way, then everything's going to be working properly, right? You know, like your your gastric function is going to be working properly. Um, even even your skin. Your skin is a manifestation of, um, of what's going on inside, you know. Um, and so some things are a work in progress, you know. It's like some things take a little bit longer to, to heal. But um, that's how I like to approach things is just kind of like having the whole body as a flow. So part of your practice is going to incorporate all of these different aspects and help give women some guidance on where they might get some extra assistance if they have certain needs. Right, right. So, I mean, um, I mean, there's only so much that you can cover, you know, in one doctor's visit. So I kind of we ask them like kind of the basic um, history on um, what they're there for, you know, and they have any questions about these things. I kind of ask them generally about their diet and exercise. And if they're not having any issues, great, because we're not here to like, you know, change your lifestyle. If you feel like your life is going great, good for you, you know. But if there is something wrong, you know, that um, you're wondering like why why is this happening or why is that happening? Um, that's what we want to try to address. And and actually, a lot of the things that I counsel on, like, you know, there's a lot of young women coming in asking about their periods, and their periods have changed, right? You know, all of a sudden, it's drier, it's less, um, not as many days of flow, you know, what's going on? And actually, as a physician, we actually don't care about the, <laughs> about the consistency of their periods. We care about the timing. So as long as they're having regular menstrual periods, that says a lot you know, about the hormones, the way that their body is functioning, all of that's normal. So then I just try to tell people, okay, this is common. This is normal. Um, it means that you're stressed out right now. Um, you're just not producing as much lining. You're getting rid of some old blood. So I just try to help them understand maybe what those little changes are that their body is going through and let them know that there's nothing wrong with this. This is this is normal and this is a, you know, manifestation of what's happening in your life right now. So helping them to understand that and knowing that it's common and normal, I think that makes a lot of sense for people. Well, just that reassurance from yeah. a physician that it's okay. Yeah. Things may change and it's really more about how is your lifestyle overall affecting mm -hmm. what's going on? Because we often hear women say, I'm under a lot of stress. And that could be a reason why their cycles are just totally off what they usually have a schedule to do. Mm -hmm. Do all women have regular cycles or are there some women who just never do? So, <laughs> so I would say that, you know, most people, um, most people don't necessarily have regular cycles, like ev like consistently every 28 days. A lot of people do, but actually when you learn in the textbooks, people are going to fluctuate within seven days every given month. So you can have one month like a 27-day cycle, the next month 29, the next month 25, and actually that's all okay because it's going to fluctuate with how your body's doing at the time, how the hormones are. Most people don't actually hit their stride with normal, normal menses until mid-20s to late-20s, 
Um, and so some people, times people in their early 20s, they get worried that they're like, how come all my friends have it exactly normal, exactly 28 days, and I don't? And that's actually okay. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of information that you have that can really help a lot of women who need to hear this. If they wanted to find you, how would they go about doing that? Uh, so you can go to my website. It's wellnessobgon.com. Um, and everything's listed there as far as email, phone number. <laughs> All right. Well, and you have a new office that is beautiful. And I think the overall comprehensive approach is certainly something that we can always everybody appreciate in the field of medicine because you mentioned that you may not have grown up going to going to see doctors most doctors are not very good <laughs> patients and i will be the first one to admit that all right i want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today here on the body show and if you'd like to hear this show again you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org follow the links to the body show you can also find us on the hpr app I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Our engineer is David Chong, and we will see you next week when we talk more about ways to stay healthy. That's right here on Mondays on The Body Show. We'll see you then.